0: Welcome over in the venue. Glad you're joining us. And Pastor Jared, we're blessed to have you over there leading worship. And Pastor Brandon, thank you, and the whole team that serves over there. Again, welcome to all of you that are here. All right, got your Bibles? Hold them up. Let me see. Got your Bibles? Put them in the air. Come on, everybody get them up. Over in the venue, get them up. Get them up. Get them up. Get them up. There you go. Here's the deal. If you don't have a Bible uh, today, that's Okay. But if you don't own one, you need to get one in the altar room after we're done here. Okay, there's an altar room over in the venue. If you're listening online right now, you can just come to the church on Monday. We'll put a Bible in your hand. And the reason why it's okay today if you don't have one is because we're gonna put, uh, we put all of the verses in your hands. or in the program, they'll come up on the Jumbotrons. But uh, we want you to have a copy of the Word of God if you don't own one, so make sure you, you get it. You can turn to Romans chapter two. Um, This is a church that believes in the Bible The whole Bible and that, 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 That's the, the key one A lot of people believe in the Bible Some of it anyway But we believe in the Bible The whole Bible And nothing but the Bible And we want to make sure you have a copy of the Word of God In your own hands But before I get into today's message Let me do a couple of things here real quick Number one, I just want to Thank all of you, I I received, um, I couldn't even tell you how many, hundreds, hundreds of emails last week, uh, letters, uh, private messages on my Facebook page from literally hundreds and hundreds of people just expressing their thanks um, for the stand that this particular church takes on Scripture, and I just told you what it was, and that is we believe in the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And I appreciate all of you praying for me that it means a lot and I know it matters. And yeah, you know, there's, you know, 98.6% of all the things I received was fantastic and encouraging and all that. There's always going to be people out there that um, they're offended by the scriptures. And we know that. We, we understand that. And there were a, a number of people who were offended. And, and, and that's okay. That's all right. I already know that's going to happen. Happens here every weekend. Um, but thank you for your prayers and your support and all that. And uh, there is, uh, in our newspaper a while back, there was um, an article about some really evil, wicked people down in L.A. that are coming to our city and they want to put a um, a cabaret place here. It's actually, a, it's actually a strip joint, really, is what it is. It's an adult entertainment place. And I don't want that in my city. And um, somebody, I, I, I know that the overwhelming majority of people want something crappy and sinful like this in their city. I get it. I, I understand that. But I don't. I don't want it here in our city. And I'm not a city council member. I'm not a mayor. I don't sit on the board that hands out permits or whatever all that is. But I do know the God who says that he holds the hearts of kings in his hands. And I want us, those of us that name the name of Christ, to be praying that that doesn't end up in our city. And by the way, that's right across the street from the Double Tree. It's at the Old St. Stan's uh, little restaurant there. And so we as God's people need to pray that that doesn't show up in our town. The sad thing is it's gonna show up somewhere. But I don't want it in my town. I found an interesting passage in Jeremiah chapter six and I thought, wow, it really describes maybe where America is today. Just how goofed up and crummy our country's become because we've gotten away from biblical principles. It says this in Jeremiah six, verse 15. It says, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? No, not at all. They don't even know how to blush. And that's, that describes our country. We don't know how to blush anymore. things that ought to just make us go, whoa, we celebrate. We as a nation don't know how to blush at crummy, sinful, degrading things anymore. Instead, we, we hand out awards to people who make crummy things. And one of my prayers is for myself, for my family, is that we are a family who we, we still blush when something crummy is laid before us. You might be new in the Lord and you're just used to all the crummy, sinful stuff that is just thrown at us and, and maybe you've forgotten how to blush. One of the prayers in your life ought to be is God, help me as I learn your word to learn how to blush again. To just be embarrassed and ashamed of some of the things I might think are, are okay. And these companies that want to come to our city, they understand the culture that we don't blush anymore. So we can go stick something like that in Modesto make a lot of money and people will show up and men will be tempted and whatever. I don't want to. Father, I just wanna pray right now, God. I love my town. I love this city. It's a great city. A lot of really fantastic people in this town. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, other churches, just great, great city. A lot of good things are going on here. But Lord, I don't want this place in my town and I don't have the power individually to stop it from happening, but I know you do, God. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would hear the prayers of your people. Maybe we in love would contact those that are responsible, our city council members and mayor, and let them know how we feel. But my hope isn't in a city council member or a mayor, planning commission person. It's in you, Lord. Thanks, Jesus, for your goodness. Bless us now as we get into your word, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us, we're uh, in a series where we're going through the book of Romans together. And last week, we finished looking at the first chapter where Paul basically accomplishes five things, okay? Number one, Paul lets us know who he was, He tells us that he was a servant, or really, the Greek word is he was a slave of Christ. He voluntarily became a slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus was his master. And so whatever the master told him to do, he was going to do it. Now, the good news is is that Jesus is a great master, a loving master, a compassionate, merciful master. Number two, he let us know what his ministry was. He tells us that he was a preacher of the gospel. And I often think to myself, do you really know what your ministry is? Andy down here sells insurance for State Farm, my agent. Paul was a tent maker, but he doesn't mention any of that stuff. He knew what his ministry was, and he was just up here a little bit ago. His ministry is he, he he leads us in worship. Some people right now their ministries are they're discipling children in our children's ministries, or they 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 serve us by uh, you know uh, taking an offering, handing out programs, helping people find seats. Some people they serve in their youth ministries. Do you know where you serve? Not not what do you do to earn a living, earn a few shekels? What's your ministry? Paul tells us his ministry was to be a preacher of the gospel, and more specifically, he was a preacher to us Gentiles. Number three, he begins to unpack what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus. The good news is Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, we're told that the Messiah was going to come, the Savior was going to come, the gospel was going to come, the good news was going to come. You get to the New Testament, and the gospel has come, the Messiah has come, the Savior has come. You could boil down the gospel to one word, and that is Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the the good news. Number four, he begins to lay out the power that there is in the gospel, the power that there is in a relationship with Jesus that literally has the power to change your eternal destiny. That you could go from spending your eternity in a place that was designed for the devil and the demons, hell, to spending your eternity in the presence of Jesus himself forever and ever and ever. That's power. That's power. And number five, last but not least, Paul begins to lay out the human condition. Sin has messed up human beings. And because of sin, God's angry with people. His wrath is being poured out on people's lives. In fact, if you look at the front of your program We're in part one, there are five parts to Romans and we're only in part one and we're gonna be in part one until we get to Romans 3.23 basically and then we'll hit part two. But right now we're in part one which we've entitled the problem or the dilemma and that is sin and it's not a fun topic to talk about. I received a number of emails and letters and things where people were just really upset that last week all you did was talk about God's wrath and well, I'm, I'm stuck. I believe in the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible. I got no choice. And when you take little hunks of a book of a Bible, guess what? You, you're gonna end up talking about some crummy things. And right now, we're in a crummy section, the problem, the dilemma, sin. Sin has messed up all of our lives. But when you really have an understanding of the problem, when you get to section two or part two, which is the solution, wow, section two is a great section, but I I gotta wait to get there. But when I do, wow, it's gonna be sweet because we'll have a fuller understanding of the problem that we all face. Now, when you get to chapter two, Paul begins to unpack the sin that Jesus attacked more often, more severely, and more directly than any other sin. And it wasn't homosexuality, and it wasn't adultery, and it wasn't getting drunk or watching TV or whatever. It was the sin of self-righteousness which Chuck Swindoll calls the deadliest sin in the world. But before we get to this, I want us to watch this week's Not a Shame video. And here's the deal, I need to set it up a little bit because it's, it's, um, it's different than the ones we've seen before. It's really weighty. And uh, just to let you know, last night I had a gal come up to me because of this video, because one person was going to be honest about her life and what's gone on with her life, and it impacted at least one lady last night in an unbelievable way. I think you're going to enjoy this. Check out the Jumbotrons. I grew up loving the
1: Lord and was very involved in youth groups. At a very early age, my biggest value was on purity, and I made the purity promise and got the purity ring. I was a fun-loving, faith-driven teenager. When I was 16, my neighbor followed me home and broke into our house and raped me. I was paralyzed by fear. I was scared of the world and didn't let a lot of my feelings out. Not even my family knew. I became self-destructive and full of anger and resentment, and I contemplated suicide every day. I became so self-destructive and had no self-worth that I allowed myself to be in a relationship with somebody who was very abusive and hurt me daily. He left scars on my heart and on my body. Fear, anger, and shame ruled my life. I allowed my mind to be captive to vengeance and revenge. In Romans 2, it says, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself, for you who judges others do the very same things. I realized that vengeance wasn't mine but the Lord's. By only allowing hate, anger, and fear into my life, there was no room for love or compassion. I began my healing journey back to the Lord. I let go of all of the burdens that had been holding me down for so long. My faith was soon to be tested. 11 years after my first assault, what had happened to me all those years ago had leaked out into my neighborhood. My attacker's stepmom came to me begging for his forgiveness. I held her, told her it was gonna be okay and wiped the tears away from her eyes. She asked me how I could go on and live my life with what her stepson had done. I looked her in the eyes and said, that is the power of Christ in me. I shared my faith with her and explained to her that the healing i had experienced was only through Christ. I'm a very changed person. Where fear and anger once festered, only love and compassion remains. I truly am saved by grace and freed from my past. I pray for those who have hurt me and pray that they find peace and purpose in life. The Lord has been faithful to me by providing me a husband who's loved me through it all. Jesus has given me joy and an undeniable purpose in life. My favorite verse is Esther 4, 14. It says, Perhaps this is the moment for which you've been created. I was created to tell my story and live life not ashamed. I live to tell others what Christ has done for me. I pray that my story empowers others and is a true testament to the power of Christ. My name is Natalie McGinnis Perez and I am not ashamed of the gospel.
0: She's here on Saturday night. She was here last night with her husband. And those are her horses. She boards horses out at the Skiles Ranch. The power of Christ in me. That's the weighty line. And I'm not sure that we really understand as believers the power of Christ in us. In fact, Paul prays that we would have a greater understanding of that truth, the power of Christ in us. Let me give you a brief description of the self-righteous person, or what some people might call the moralist. He's a person who has strong moral values, high standards. They, They live on principle. They're usually very disciplined people. They live just as everybody thinks they ought to live. They know right from wrong, and they live it. They know how to behave, and they do it. In the eyes of society, they're everything a human being is to be. They're they're great neighbors. They're great parents. They're great employees. They're model citizens. They would have agreed with Paul's assessment in Romans chapter 1 that those that practice the gross things that he talked about there should receive God's wrath. They were were hip, hip in the rain all the way up through the end of Romans chapter one. Now you're probably asking yourself, pastor, why would Jesus attack someone who lived like this? Why would Chuck Swindoll think that that's the deadliest sin in the world? Beloved, it's the deadliest sin in the world because the self-righteous person or the moralist believe that because they live a moral lifestyle, they're exempt from God's wrath. I mean, why would God be angry with them? They're so good. This is what makes it so deadly because it kind of sounds logical, doesn't it? I mean, we all understand that Hitler deserves the wrath of God, right? We all understand the fact that Charlie Manson deserves the wrath of God. We understand that, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, deserves the wrath of God. We understand the fact that whoever, you know, raped Natalie, they certainly just, you know, deserve the the wrath of God. But not me. I mean, I'm a good neighbor. I'm a good parent. I'm a good employee. I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm a volunteer, you know, with uh, the elderly in our city. I'm a model citizen. As I said, this sounds logical, but it's not theological. We all understand that whoever raped Natalie deserves the wrath of God. We get it. But Pastor, I don't I have never raped anybody, I've not murdered anybody. I, 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 I don't you know cuss, I don't drink and I don't go out with girls who do. you know. Why, why would the wrath of God be on me? My, my neighbor, when they broke their leg, I went across the street and mowed their lawn for a month. I go down to the gospel mission and, and at Christmas and serve up, you know dinner. I see a homeless guy on the side of the road, you know, I pull over and give him a few bucks. Somebody needs to borrow something of mine, I'm more than happy to let him have it. Why would God's wrath be on me? Now, I want you to know that there's more hope for the sinful person in Romans chapter 1 to come to faith in Jesus than it is for the self righteous person. Because the self righteous person just has a hard time seeing why they need God. We've probably all dealt with folks like that, haven't we? Somebody comes into my office, man, their husband gave their life to Christ and they want me to talk to their spouse or vice versa. I want you to know something. I'd much rather have somebody who was selling dope, killing people on the weekends, uh, doing all kinds of crummy things, sitting in my office, they get it, than somebody who's just a really great person, model citizen. I know this is gonna be difficult because they don't know why they need Jesus. You want Jesus? That's fine. My wife needs Jesus, I get it. I don't need him because everything in my life is fantastic. But Paul makes it crystal clear that the moralist will spend their eternity in the same place as anybody else who rejects the forgiveness that there is in Christ Jesus, the gospel. And that's hell. He makes that crystal clear. Now, I believe that there's a reason the the sin of self-righteousness follows the heinous sins of of chapter 1. I think it would be really easy for a person to think, thank God I'm not like one of those people, right? Probably many of you, if you were here last week, were thinking to yourself, thank God I'm not like that. Those people really are goofed up. And for those that feel that way, Romans chapter 2 is for you. You see, Paul tells us that the morally self-righteous person is just as guilty before God as the immoral person. The message of Romans chapters one through three is that nobody is innocent. Nobody, everybody stands guilty before God, even those that lead outwardly moral lives. That's why... Paul's going to take a bunch of time, three plus chapters, to kind of lay out a case. So with all this said, let's read our text for today. Okay, Romans chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, okay? He says this, you may think you can condemn such people. He's talking about the people we just read about in Romans chapter 1, those that had suppressed the truth They've, they've rejected the truth, and in many cases, they've actually replaced the truth. But you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, on your notes, I've got four things. I'm only going to get through one of them today. Okay, I'm just going to get through one of them. Uh, the, the, The series which was supposed to be at a year and a half, it just became longer. It's going to get longer. And I don't care how long it takes us to get through it. But we're only going to go through one, because I know some of you are looking and going, how's he going to get through all four of these? Okay, we're we're golden. I, I got it. We'll just get through one. Now, the key word in our passage today is the word condemn. It literally means to condemn or to sentence. Or to pass a verdict. And the major message of this text is that nobody has the right to condemn. Nobody has the right to sentence somebody else. Nobody has the right to pass a verdict onto somebody else for their sin. Because guess what? You stand condemned by your own sin. That's the major point of these five verses. Now, beloved, there's no doubt that the Bible commands us as believers to confront sinful behavior. God commands us to do that. There are times when we need to analyze, look at another person's life, and make some judgments about how they're choosing to live so that we can then have a conversation with them about their sin, There's no doubt that God wants us to look at another person's life, our brother's life, our sister's life, our children's lives, our parents' lives, and make a judgment. We've got to analyze their life and say, hey, you're living outside of God's will. You're you're not living according to the scriptures, and God wants us then to have a conversation with them about their sin. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18, He said, if a believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. You you go and you talk about the offense. You don't come and bring condemnation. You, You don't sentence them or pass a verdict against them. You just simply have a conversation about the sin or the offense. But if you are unsuccessful, then take two or three others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Beloved, obviously, Jesus wants us to make judgments or analyze how people are choosing to live their lives because he commands us to confront our brothers and sisters in the Lord when they're choosing to live in a sinful way. In other words, you and I have the obligation to God Almighty to make judgments about certain things, to analyze a person's life and have a conversation with them if they're choosing to live apart from the word of God. G.K. Chesterton said this, tolerance is the virtue of a man or a person who doesn't have any convictions. See, we as believers have convictions that are based upon the word of God. And if I see you as my brother in the Lord or a sister in the Lord living outside the, the teachings of this book, in other words, you're choosing to disobey God, live in sin, I am not going to be tolerant of that. God doesn't want me to be tolerant of that. He wants me to sit down with you and talk about your sin. Not to condemn you, that's not my job. My do- job isn't to pass you know, you know, a sentence upon you or to you know, cast a verdict upon your life. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to simply talk to you, have a conversation with you about how you're choosing to live, that what you're doing is gonna destroy your life. It's gonna destroy your family. It's gonna destroy your marriage. It's gonna destroy your business. You're being deceived. Stop living that way and turn and repent and live the way God wants you to live. that's, That's our role as believers. We're to do that. Here's the deal. Though you and I aren't the judge, there are times when we're called to speak for the one who is the judge. See? But we need to be very, very careful when we do it. Our brother James said this in chapter 4. He said, There's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, only one who has. The authority to condemn, to pass a sentence, to cast a verdict, only one, the one who's able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to pass sentence against your neighbor? Who are you to condemn them? In other words, what James is saying is that God is the one who gave us the law, and because of this, he's the only one who has the authority to judge or condemn those who refuse to repent of breaking those laws. And he's the only one who has the authority to save those who do repent of breaking those laws. He's it. He's the only one. Now, Paul, in our text, he gives us four characteristics. And as I said, I'm only going to talk about one. Four characteristics of the self-righteous person. The person who thinks, you know, I'm not so bad. I'm okay. I'm not gross or anything. I have a few faults. I got a few weaknesses, but I'm nowhere near as bad as those other sinners in Romans chapter 1. And the first one is this. And this is the only one we're going to talk about today. And that is this. Self-righteous people can easily see other people's sin, but not their own. A self-righteous person, the moralist, knows, <laughs> you know, about your sin. He's really good at seeing your sin. It's like he's got a radar. Ah, oh, yeah. The, the self-righteous person can see your sin at 100 paces. But man, do they have a hard time looking at their own sin. In verse 1, Paul says, you may think you can condemn such people. You you, you think you can pass judgment on those in Romans chapter 1, but you're just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same thing. Now, one of the things, as I said, is we are really good as human beings at seeing everybody else's sin, but we don't see our own sin very well or we find ways of excusing it. We, if we are somehow confronted with our own sin, we as human beings have a way of just kind of excusing it, making light of it trying to pass it off for for, for something else. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven. It's great, it's a great story. Can't miss the point. He says, don't judge others. Don't condemn others. And you won't be judged. For you'll be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you're gonna be judged. You wanna point out somebody else's sin? Guess what, I'll make sure that your sin's pointed out too. Be careful, he says. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye? when you can't see past a log in your own eye. Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. You see, the self-righteous person looks at the people in Romans chapter one and thinks to themselves, thank God I'm not like that goofed up guy. Those guys are dirty, rotten sinners and they forget that they got a log in their own eye. Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't ever deal with the speck in your brother's eye or your spouse's eye or your children's eye. He doesn't say, don't do it. He just simply says, you better be very careful when you do because you've got a log in your own eye. You better make sure that you've dealt with your own sin before you go out and make judgments about somebody else's sin, your spouse, your children. It's always a beautiful moment in a child's life when they have a father or mother who's a drunk and that drunk confronts the child on their sin. Got this big log in his eye. The kids, everybody knows in the family, dad's a drunk, but you're confronting me on my sin? Let me tell you what's a powerful thing, is when you as a parent deal with your own sin, and your children see you dealing with your own sin. That's a motivating factor for them to deal with the sin in their own life. But it's always was a weird thing to me. To have some parent who's living in blatant sin come in and want me to you know, help them deal with their own child's sin. Listen, parent, you don't have to be perfect. Nobody is. That's the point of Romans 2 here. Nobody's perfect. And I'm called to be a parent just as you are. But let me tell you something that's very powerful. Is when you deal with the log in your own eye and you sit down with your son or you sit down with your daughter and you say, hey, listen, there's some shenanigans going on at school. You're living in a sinful way. And guess what? Dad's been thinking about the log in my eye. I know I have a drinking problem. I know I got an anger problem. I know I, whatever the sin is. And I'm very much aware of it. And I want you to be praying for your dad because I got to deal with this sin in my life. But here's the deal. I'm still your father. And I want to talk to you about what's going on in your life. In other words, you, you at least acknowledge your own log. Listen, here's the deal. Paul's argument, here's pretty simple. If you make the decision to condemn someone else, you condemn yourself. Why? Because if you have enough knowledge to condemn someone else for their sin, you have enough knowledge to judge your own sin. See? In other words, if, if you have the awareness that something is sinful before God, like the people's conduct in Romans chapter one, then you also have the awareness to know that you have sin in your own life and that sin condemns you. You see, that's what he's trying to say here. And by the way, we all have the awareness of sin, but as chapter one so clearly states, some people just choose to suppress it. They don't want to deal with their own sin. They just... Makes them feel better if they just deal with somebody else's sin. Years ago, I I, I, was, I was thinking about this. I, I had a couple, I was the youth pastor here, and uh, this couple, they, they, they had gone uh, through a divorce, and I didn't know it at the time, but they came into my office, and they had a son who was acting up at school, and was all just not doing well, and... You know, they wanted me to throw some pixie dust over the kid's head and make them all better. And they were sitting in my office, and they were telling me about their son, and they were rattling off, you know, he's being disrespectful to the teachers, you know, he's being disrespectful to us, he's, you know, just not doing his homework. He just, the guy had this whole list of all the sin in his life, and, and I knew this kid pretty well, and I thought, man, this is weird, man, this, you know, what's going on, you know? And I, I said, so what's going on in your home? What's happening in your home? Anything crazy going on in your guys' life? I I can't figure out why your son would be doing this. I'm just trying to kind of put it together and I'm missing something here. (laughs) And they say, well, you know, uh, mom and, you know, we've divorced. The divorce was just final and da 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 da. And I'm thinking, okay, all right. So basically, your sin, your junk, we don't want to talk about. We want to talk about your, your, your kid's junk. And then they said, I said, so who's he going to live with? You know, who's he going to spend most of the time with? Who got major custody? <laughs> Never forget this. Oh, Pastor Rick, you don't understand. We're kind of looking at this like we just got to get a fresh start. And so he's going to go live with grandma. <laughs> now, I've come a long way in the last 20 years. You know, the, the Lord in me, the power of Christ in me has really softened some edges in my life. Um, back then, I, I just, I'm sitting there going, okay, I, I just wanna grab you and throw you through my plate glass window. I'm, I'm not kidding, I was so angry. And I got up and I said, hey, come here, guys. And we went into the guy's bathroom, both of them, took them both in there and I said, look in the mirror. You came in here wanting to talk about your boy, right there's the problem, the two of you, and your sin, and your evil, and your wickedness, you're the problem, and I went off. Anyway, um, I still run run into them, by the way, every now and then. They've divorced again, and remarried again, and divorced again, and remarried again. Um, About, it was less than 24 hours later, I get a call from the pastor. That's true. (laughs) hey I hear so and so was in your office yeah they were and I hear you basically you know weren't kind (laughs) I I said well I wasn't and I remember him saying you shouldn't have been thank you because he was very much aware of what was going on I was just finding out at that minute They, they couldn't even put it together they had so suppressed the truth about their own sin. And it was all the boy's fault, you see. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the, the story of a rich young ruler. He was a man that had a, who thought a lot of himself. He, he thought that he and God were okay. And it says this in verse 18, He says, once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now I want you to know something. In that culture, if you were wealthy like this man was, it was thought that you and God were okay. I mean, that was a part of God's blessing on your life. If you had a lot of money, then obviously God liked you. That was kind of what was thought of in that culture. There's no doubt in my mind that this kid was just asking a rhetorical type question. He thought he was going to hear, well, what are you talking about, man? Your 401K's loaded up. Your bank account's loaded up. Look at the big house you got. Look at the big cars you got. Are you kidding me? You're golden. You're good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You Must not commit adultery, and I'm sure he hadn't. You must not murder. I'm sure he hadn't. You must not steal. I'm sure he hadn't done that either. You must not testify falsely. I'm sure he hadn't done that either. Honor your father and your mother. No doubt that he had done that. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young. Then when Jesus heard This answer, he said, well, there's still one thing you haven't done. Now he's going to put his finger on the sin nerve, the thing that he has suppressed, the truth about his own life, the log in his own eye. See, now he's going to do it. Jesus is going to point it out. He said, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw this, he said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, this guy thought him and God were okay. He, he was the moralist, he was the self righteous guy. I'm a good guy. I obey my parents. I honor them. I haven't murdered anybody. I I haven't raped anybody. I haven't done any of those heinous things. But Jesus looks past what this young guy saw in his own life, and he put his finger right on the sin in his own life. The sin of his love for money, his love for wealth but he didn't see it. He had this log in his own eye. And Jesus came along and wiggled it a little bit. Nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of really godly people in Scripture and today have money. But they understand that just because they have money doesn't mean that somehow God's blessing their life and that them and God are okay. They, they, they don't equate that. I love what Dr. MacArthur says. He says, quote, the secret hope of the hypocritical self-righteous person is that God will somehow judge him by a standard lower than perfect truth and righteousness. He knows enough to recognize the wickedness of his heart, but hopes vainly that God will judge him in the same superficial way that most others judge him and that he judges himself. And I love that last phrase. Man, I sure hope God judges me like some of my buddies judge me in such a superficial way. Or like I judge myself. Beloved God sees it all. He sees your heart, he knows your heart. He knows your mind. He sees and knows your every thought. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. (laughs) Hebrews chapter four, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we we must give an account. Isn't that that just weighty? He sees it all. He knows every thought you've ever had. He, He knows it all. And your sin may not be like Charlie Manson's or... You know, the, the person that raped Natalie, obviously. But make no mistake about it. He knows every thought that's ran through your mind. He knows every deed. He knows it all. He knows about those secret things that you'd be embarrassed to say anything to anybody about. Those sins that you have in your life, you know they're there. You've just suppressed it. He knows. He's seen it. John chapter 2 says, he did not need man's testimony about man. Why? For he knew what was in a man. He knew. He knows. And Because of this, we all stand guilty before him, every one of us. So don't be so quick to accuse others and excuse yourself. That's what Paul's trying to say here. He's not saying that, you know, well, you know, if you go out and rape somebody, you know, it's on the same level as, say, um, uh, telling a white lie. They're both sin. They'll both keep you out of heaven. The judgment of God will be upon both of you. But make no mistake about it. He's not saying that, well, that they're equal in terms of their weightiness. Look, you murder somebody, that's way more weighty than if you, you know, tell a white lie or something like that they're both sin and they both bring the condemnation of God upon your life. Well, this is the bad news that we all stand guilty before him. This is the bad news. But I always want to end with some good news and the good news is God loved us. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, here. The gospel came. The good news came. Everybody was condemned before God. And there hangs the second person of the Holy Trinity. Voluntarily giving up his life for you. Taking your sin Regardless of whatever it was upon himself, one of the beautiful things about that video is Natalie is reading the section of scripture that we're looking at. And she was able through the power of Christ in her to say, you know what, here's the deal. I'm not a rapist, I'm not a murderer, I'm not Charlie Manson, but before God I stand guilty also. And I can allow that sin to goof me up or I can... Allow the power of Christ in me to offer forgiveness and move on with my life because I'm just as guilty. She got it. And there Jesus comes off of the cross. They put him into a tomb, and he walks out of that tomb three days later, leaving all of your sin, regardless of what it was inside that tomb. And he says to you, if you give your life to me, if you'd surrender your life to me, you let me be the CEO of your life, You, you become my slave, you let me into your life, and I will cleanse you of all of your sin, regardless of what it is. I will cleanse you of your sin. I'll do that. And once I cleanse you of your sin, no longer will the condemnation of God be upon your life. And you and I will be okay. And when you take your last breath here on planet Earth, you will spend your eternity with me forever. (laughs) See, that's the good news. And it all happens because of Jesus. It all happens because of Jesus. Why don't you close your eyes over in the venue. Close your eyes for a second. And I look out in this crowd while your eyes are closed and I, I know most of you over in the venue, you know Jesus. You know him. You've given your life to him. You surrendered your life over to him. And so today you came and you sang some great songs to him and about him. You, you brought a, a, a gift to him, a love gift. The, 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 You're offering to him because he cleansed you of your sin. You love to hear the word of God proclaimed. You weren't a murderer, you weren't a rapist, you, 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 you know, you, you weren't some crazy person, but you, you recognize the sin in your own life, and you're grateful that Jesus came for you. So it's a no-brainer to come and worship and give and sing. You get it. But there might be one of you in here, or one of you over in the venue, maybe you're watching online, and you know what? Right now, according to the word of God, because of your sin, you stand condemned. The wrath of God's on your life because of your sin. And it's only through our relationship with Jesus that that gets gets fixed. And if you're here and you'd like to talk with one of our pastors and one of our elders, spiritual leader, all you have to do is go into the altar room you're watching online, you can call the church on Monday or get in your car and get down here by next hour. Let us talk to you. The most important decision you'll ever make is what you do with Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. Father, thanks for uh, today. And again, I'm just thankful for all the educators in the house today. And thankful God, that you gave us this incredible book, the Word of God. Wow. May we be a church that is not just committed to having it and holding it and looking at it, but reading it and then obeying it, God. Thanks for your goodness to us, and I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. amen. Hey, Lord bless you. Live for Christ.